0: 3 and verse 1, he's called the apostle. Now, sometimes we get confused about that and say, well, he must have been just a man. Now, the word apostle means one sent from God. One sent from God or one sent by God. He was the high priest and the sin offering sent from God. Secondly, he's the son of God. Chapter 4 and verse 14, he's the Messiah. That's a reference to his deity. Apostle is a reference to his manhood. Messiah is a reference to his deity. And so he tells us to hold fast to our confession. Now, what makes Protestant churches unique is that we stand on what Martin Luther and and others said, and that is these three confessions and characteristics of the Reformation. They're in your notes. No sacrifice but Calvary. No priest but Christ. No confessional but the throne of grace. I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to be tested. But I go to my great high priest and I ask him to help me in my time of need. I go to the throne of grace and at the throne of grace I find the power and the strength to hold fast. One of the great stories from the Gulf War is a time when there was a great deal of tension among the... uh, the nations that were working together with the United States and trying to uh, deal with the Gulf War situation. And in one of those days, George Bush, President George Bush, the first, called Margaret Thatcher. And they were having a conversation. They weren't sure if the French were going to stay in. They weren't sure if all the coalition was going to hold together. And Margaret Thatcher made a great statement to George Bush. She said, George, this is no time to go wobbly. Now that's an English expression, it means it's no time to buckle, it's no time to blink. When we are tempted, it's no time to go wobbly. It's no time to buckle, it's no time to blink, it's no time for us to back up. And So thirdly, I want us to look at the great high priest who knows what I'm going through. My great high priest knows what I'm going through. Now let's look at the characteristics of a priest. This is an earthly priest. Number one, and we'll just kind of go through these, this is for you to look at on your own, but Number one, he was a man so he could represent men before God. Jesus was that. Jesus was all man. He didn't appear to be a man. He wasn't kind of a man. He was all man and all God. An earthly priest had to be a man so he could represent men before God, chapter 5 and verse 1. Number two, he was appointed by God to offer sacrifices. A priest had a role of offering sacrifices, chapter 5 and verse 1. Number three, he had to be sympathetic with human need. Now you find that in that little phrase, ignorant and misguided. The priests were were men, just like you. Sometimes they didn't know what to do. Sometimes they they made the wrong decision. But he had to be a person who was sympathetic with human needs. So when somebody would come to him and say, you know, I've blown it, I've messed up my life, the priest would say, I know, I've been there, I've done that, I understand how that feels. He had to be sympathetic. It says later that Jesus is sympathetic, but for a different reason. Number four, he had to be able to help people deal with their sins. He had to be able to help people deal with their sins. In other words, he served as an intermediary between God and man. He offered sacrifices, chapter 5 and verse 3. And number five, he had to make sacrifices for his own sins. That's a key. The earthly priest had to make sacrifices for his own sins. When the priest went in to make atonement for the sins of the people, he also had to make a sacrifice for his own sin. Now you remember the story that they always tied a rope to the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies because if he went in there with any sin, God would kill him and they'd have to drag him out because nobody else would want to go in there and try to get him in case they had sin. Pretty high motivation to be clean before God. You're going to go make sacrifice for somebody else. Now, let's look at the characteristics of Jesus, our high priest. And look at chapter 2 and verse 17. Chapter 2 and verse 17. This tells you that Jesus Christ was all man. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things didn't just appear to be a man, he was like man in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So let's look at the characteristics of our high priest. Number one, he has fulfilled all the requirements of God. He has fulfilled all the requirements of God. He laid aside His glory and became man. He became like His brethren in all things. What does that mean? It means that angels don't save us. Only Jesus can save us because He became like us in all things. Secondly, He sits in a place of supreme power. The difference between Jesus as our high priest and the earthly priest is that Jesus sits in a place of supreme power. No priest ever sat in the presence of God. They went in, they made atonement, and they left. Jesus went in and made atonement, and he sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Why does he get the privilege of sitting there? Because he fulfilled the role of being our priest and our sacrifice Now he's our prayer warrior. Now he's our intercessor. Number three, he is not limited to a a once-a-year sacrifice. And so I want you to look in chapter 5, and I want you to see the difference. The earthly priest is mentioned in chapter 5 in verse 2, where he talks about sacrificing for his own sin. He says, so also for himself. That's the earthly priest. Now... Jesus never sinned. So how can Jesus identify with us? Now, this is going to get a little heavy, and I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can because I need it simple so I can understand it. If you will circle verse 2 and take a line down or mark a note and go to verse 15. Verse 2 says that the earthly priests also for himself made sacrifice. But verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, how did he do that? Through his incarnation. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, not because God stands aloof and above us and says, I'll do something and figure it out for you guys. God sympathizes with us because He got right in the middle of a sinful world. He became man and took on our sin, and He sympathizes with our weaknesses. A real human body, a real mind, a real emotion, facing real temptations. Now that does not mean that Jesus Christ has experienced every individual temptation that you have experienced. That's not what it means. It, what it means is, is that Jesus knows every aspect of temptation. He knows every angle that temptation comes from. He knows every attack that the enemy has. And let's, let's walk through this, and I would just want to give you some words here to kind of help you and some illustrations to help you understand how Jesus can identify with you. First of all, Satan tempted him to alter his message. Satan tempted him to alter his message. I don't think it's in your notes. All of these were temptations for Jesus to avoid the cross, to not provide a sacrifice for sin. And when you are sinless and holy and have never tasted, never touched sin, the temptation to not have to do it to, to not have to experience it is a temptation we can't even begin to understand. Satan comes to him and says, You don't have to do this. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And so Satan tempts him to alter his message. Peter tempts him to avoid the cross. That's when Jesus turned to Simon Peter and said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He called Simon Peter Satan because Simon Peter was being used to say to him, you don't have to do what your father sent you here to do. You can do it another way. There's got to be another way. There has to be another game plan. There must be a plan B. Thirdly, on the cross they tempted him to abort his message and come down off the cross. You know, you're who you say you are, save yourself. Now that would have been a show, wouldn't it? All the Romans there, and Jesus just take himself off the cross and stride out through the crowd. He could have done that. He could have done it very easily, but he didn't do it. So it says that Jesus sympathizes with us. Let me tell you what that word means. The word means to share a common experience. To sympathize means to share a common experience. Jesus shares a common experience with us. We've all been tempted to go off of God's plan, to go off track, to take our own way, to satisfy our own will and our own desires. And where this began was in Gethsemane. Jesus didn't just take our sin on the cross. He began to take our sin in Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, as He goes and He prays three times, he begins to sense and to feel the accumulated rebellion of mankind. He begins to sense and to understand what all of this sin mounted on him and laid on him at one time is going to be like. In Gethsemane, he began to understand a glimpse of what it would be like to be rejected by God to have his Father turn his back on him. Although he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He begins to sense what's going to happen and what he's going to feel when that happens to him on the cross. And so he comes to Gethsemane and he says, if there's any other way, I'd like to do it. He was tempted to find another plan. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications. Now this is a reference to Gethsemane. With loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Now what's that say? That says that God could have said, You know what, son? I'm not going to make you do that. They can all go to hell and die in their sins, and you come back to heaven, and we'll just forget the whole deal. God had the power and the right to sovereignly change his mind. And he cries out to God with loud crying and tears, Can you imagine a father sitting in heaven watching his son on earth begging him, Please don't make me go through this. And that father saying, You've got to do it. And that son coming to an understanding, I have to do this and to know for the first time separation from two that had never been separated for all eternity, from two that had never known anything but being of like mind and of like heart and of like purpose and like holiness. And he cried out to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. God heard him. God heard that prayer. God heard that cry. But verse 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, what is temptation? Temptation is the desire to not obey. Jesus learned to obey in the garden, and he identifies with me because of prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears. Let's think through that for a moment. For the first time in his life, Jesus felt the weight and the pressure of our sin. He faced the full wrath of God. He was facing his father's rejection. Now we may have been rejected by our fathers or our parents or by somebody else or by somebody at school, but we've never faced the rejection of God. God has sought us out in love. God has sought us out in grace and in mercy. We've never known what it was like to be rejected by God. Jesus was facing the rejection and the wrath of God. Now, there's three things that Jesus felt. If you want to go in the realm of what he felt at this time, he felt three things, and these are very important because they will help you. If you can grasp this, it will help you to understand how Jesus identifies with you when you're struggling with temptation. First of all, Jesus felt shame. He felt shame. He felt a sense of defilement. For the first time in his life, although he had been in a sinful world, he had dealt with sinful people, he had offered forgiveness to sinners, he had rubbed shoulders with publicans and sinners, he had seen the worst of the dregs of this world. Jesus had never felt the shame of what he was going through that he was now going to take on the sin of man, the filth of man, the vileness of man, the worst that man can think of, the worst that man can do. And God being holy in the form of a man, the holiness of God had to run smack into the face of the depths of sin of man. My sin, your sin, My anger, your anger, my hatred, your hatred, my rebellion, your rebellion, my thoughts, your thoughts, all ran into him, and he felt shame for what he was feeling. Secondly, he felt guilt. He felt guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is the sense of hurting somebody that you love. He felt the sense of hurting his father. He knew that what he was doing was doing it for the Father, but he felt the sense of hurt and guilt. Thirdly, he felt despair. He felt despair, a sense of hopelessness. Now let me tell you what Jesus did for us, folks. Jesus obeyed God when every bone in his body and every fiber of his being told him, Get out of this go another path, leave, get out of the way. I was watching a little television this afternoon, and CBS was advertising Jesus, and here's what they said. Forget everything you've ever heard before. I want to know who the arrogant idiot is that came up with that line. You're going to tell me to forget everything that I heard before, that Jesus died for my sins, that it takes the blood of Jesus to forgive me of sins, that he loves me unconditionally? I don't need CBS movie to tell me what Jesus did for me. I've got a book that tells me, and I think the book is better than the movie. You know, he, he felt despair. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He said, but not my will, but yours be done. So that brings us to the fourth point. I can be honest about what I'm feeling by turning my temptations over to Him in prayer. Look at verse 16. Chapter 4 and verse 16, and then we'll go to chapter 5. Therefore, because Jesus went through all this, because Jesus felt the shame and the guilt and the despair, because Jesus has been through what we're going through, because He understands the pressure that we're under. Therefore, let us draw near... With confidence, that's an important word, to the throne of grace. You see, in my flesh, I cannot draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. I'm too embarrassed to go to the throne of grace because I know what I've done to Jesus. But because of Jesus, I can go to the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because he became like me in all things. He's been there and done that. He knows what I'm going through. And so I can go so that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 9 of chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 9. Having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now here's what we need to get here. When we obey Jesus, we get from Jesus what Jesus got from his Father. Strength to meet any test. Strength to meet any trial. Strength to meet any temptation. When we obey Jesus, we get from Jesus what Jesus got from his Father. When I am walking in obedience with Jesus, I get from Him what the Father gave Him. And so I can draw near with confidence. The word means to come boldly, to come with free and open and honest speech. I can come honestly and openly before Jesus and say, Lord, do you know what I'm going through? And He says, yes, I do. Sometimes we approach God when we're tempted and when we're struggling like, like we're, we're afraid He's going to find out what we're going through. He already knows. He's already felt it. He's already sensed it. He's already had to deal with it. And so because He has, I don't go timidly to Him. I go boldly to Him and say, Father, I need your help. Jesus, my great high priest, I need you on my behalf to do what I can't do for myself. So I want to give you five suggestions of what to do when testing times come. They're all found in verses 14 through 16. Number one, hold fast. Don't give in. Don't give in. It's always too soon to quit, and it's always too soon to cave in. Every day, we're faced with choices. Run from them or fall to them. Hold fast. One of the ways that Scripture puts that is stand firm, having done all to stand. God's not interested in you climbing a mountain as much as He is in you standing firm in what He said for you to do. Number two, head for cover. Head for cover. Where's cover? Throne of grace shadow of the cross. I don't care how far I've gone. I don't care how much I've learned. I don't care how much of the Bible I know. I don't care how many good experiences I have. I don't care how many ordination papers I have or how many degrees I have. I need to continually go before the throne of grace. I am never beyond needing the throne of grace. You never arrive, and it is pride that will lead to a fall that says... I I can handle this. David was a man after God's own heart. He had seen God intervene in his life over and over and over again, but one time he walked out on a roof and said, I can handle this, but he didn't, and he fell. Number three, receive mercy. Mercy is a relational term. Hold fast. That has to do with discipleship. Stay in the Word. Stay focused on the Lord. Spend time with God. Head for cover. Grace is that which God gives us that we don't deserve. you know. And then mercy. The best picture of mercy in the Bible is the prodigal son who came to his senses and ran to his father, and his father saw him, and he put the coat on him, and he put the ring on his finger, and he said, "'Kill the fatted calf, for my son which was lost has been found.'" and they threw a celebration, and they threw a party for the prodigal who had come home. God does not stand on the porch of heaven saying, you're going to have to ask me harder. God stands on the porch of heaven longing for you and I to come back home. He wants more than anything for his children to live under his rule and under his love in his house. Number four, let the word work. Chapter four and verse twelve. Submit yourself to it. Let God's word cut you when it needs to cut you. Let it do what it needs to do. Surgeons never cut because it makes you feel good. They make they cut because ultimately it can lead to your healing. Let the Word do its work. Number five, seek the Lord, verse 16, chapter 4 and verse 16. I don't think the Bible will ever waste any words. Notice that he didn't say that we come before a throne of law. He says we come before a throne of grace. The Bible doesn't say we come before a throne of religion. It says we come before a throne of grace. It doesn't say now, when you get tempted and when you mess up, you come and you write on the chalkboard 1,000 times, I will not sin anymore. No, you just come to the throne of grace. Lord, here I am. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your help. I'm not going to overcome this unless I do. You know why we fall for sin? Because we don't fall on our knees before the throne of grace. I think I do a pretty good job of, of covering myself, but I'm not stupid. When I travel, I normally take a staff member or two with me. When I went to Houston back in January, I took Mark and Brian with me. Why? Oh, I'm okay. My, you know, my marriage is good. I love my wife. I, I'm not interested in anybody else, but I know the devil. And so I'm not going to be dumb and put myself in a position where anybody can accuse me of something. And so I always take somebody with me. I told John the other day, I said, I think I'm going to take somebody with me anytime I go anywhere. Because all you've got to do now today is just be accused and you're guilty. You, you could be 50 miles away from the accusation, but just the accusation makes you guilty anymore. And so I always travel with protection. that's why i would encourage you don't ever think you can get out there on your own and handle whatever temptation comes your way i don't care how good a quiet time you had that morning the devil can get you before the sun goes down don't fool yourself into thinking oh, i can handle this i've handled it before i can handle it again you'll stumble You'll fall, well, you'll embarrass yourself, and you'll hurt the kingdom. When you go to the throne of grace, you find Jesus gives you two things. I mentioned these earlier. First of all, you get mercy. John chapter 6 and verse 37. He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You get mercy. I don't know where we got the image that Jesus Christ is standing waiting to slap us around and to hurt us and to tell us how sorry we are. The Scripture, I know this verse relates to salvation, but I want to tell you that it relates to sanctification too. You come to Him, He's not going to cast you out. You know, I said, no, I'm not interested in talking to you today. You're not miserable enough yet. He's just waiting. Secondly, you get grace to help in time of need. Now, let me tell you what that little phrase in time of need means. It would better be translated grace to help before it's too late. That's a better translation. When I go to Jesus, I get grace to help before it's too late. See, I don't have to fall. I don't have to fail. Because I can go boldly to the throne of grace and get grace to help at the opportune time, at the right moment, before it's too late. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed, please? I don't know what you're dealing with tonight. I don't know what is going on in your life at this moment. But I know that tonight, the throne of grace is open for all who will come and for all who will receive. You may feel like a failure. The enemy may be beating you up. He may be telling you about every time you fail, but you can boldly go to the throne of grace and find mercy and help in time of need. So tonight, our staff's here at the front. If you just need to pray with somebody, you don't have to get specific just if you're struggling you get specific with Jesus but it may be you want to come to the front and kneel and pray and maybe that you want to pray with a staff member just ask somebody to stand with you and encourage you right now but whatever it is that you need Jesus to do for you would you just tonight in these moments come boldly before the throne of grace and find the help you need in time of trouble. Mark's gonna sing as he does. This altar is open, and these men are here at the front, so you come
1: right now. I need the every hour, more. My Savior, I come to Thee. In
0: just a moment, we're going to sing another verse. Here's what I want to ask you to do. You know, you, you may be dealing with life pretty good right now, but I, I've just got a sense that there's some folks in this room that, you've got a family member and they're not handling temptation very well. Satan's got his claws and his grip in them and they're getting pulled down, sucked down. It may be your child, it may be your husband, it may be your wife, it may be your parents. And the enemy's got a foothold in their life. He's built a stronghold inside of them and they can't break free of it. So I want to ask you right now, would you just boldly approach the throne of grace on their behalf? Because I want to tell you something, folks, sometimes people can't even pray for themselves. They're so wrapped up in sin, and we have to intercede on their behalf. The Holy Spirit makes groanings. Jesus prays at the right hand of the Father, but sometimes we've got to go before God on their behalf and say, Lord, they're not even willing to pray about this, but I bring it to you and ask you in your grace and in your mercy and your love because you've been there to give them an understanding of what's available to them through Christ. So right now, all across this room, you've got somebody in your family that's dealing with something. I, I don't know why I'm impressed to do this. I just think that there are people in this room, and you've got members of your family, and they're washing out. And I just want to ask you, just get before God on their behalf. Just seek the Lord and go to the throne of grace on their behalf because God wants to use you. Because they can't pray for themselves right now. They don't even want to pray for themselves right now. Maybe they're not desperate enough to pray for themselves right now. But let God use you tonight. And those of you, if you don't have somebody in that situation, there are people in this room that do. And I ask you and I beg you, pray for them as they pray for their loved ones. Don't make this as a time for looking around. Don't make this as a time for wondering what's going to happen next. Let's get before God. In these few moments, let's just begin a process of, of touching heaven and changing earth. Get a hold of God on behalf of somebody, and let's touch heaven on their behalf, and let's see God move and change some lives. Mark's going to sing, and as he does nobody. You might as well give up. And the seller voices are always screaming up to us to tell us, come back down and be comfortable with being a failure. But then there are the balcony voices. And the balcony voices are the people who are always stretching us, who say, I believe God wants to do something in your life. I believe God has a plan and a purpose.